Father, this, this life that we live, it's all about you. So we pray this morning that you would grace us with your presence and bring our minds to the, wor- the words in your scripture. And Father, I pray that you'd be lifted up and that you could help me hide behind your cross. Father, you know that I'm a weak vessel and you know that uh, I'm imperfect. But you are strong and you're perfect. And so I pray that you would help me convey that this morning. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So just to get a little idea of the book of Hebrews, we want to look at the background of this sermon letter. It's always good when you're studying the Bible to look at the background of the book. Um, it, It gives you context for what's happening. And oftentimes you can find applications uh, for your for your everyday life. In fact, the main point that I'll be sharing with you this morning, uh, part of it has come from just looking at the the background of the book of Hebrews. So it's, it's very valuable. So this book was written around the time of the Jerusalem Council in 50 A.D. In 50 A.D. Now, you have to understand, in the first century, after Pentecost, there was a lot of debates going on about the ceremonial laws of Moses and whether people should be circumcised or not. And more particularly, the Jewish Christians were the ones who were persecuting the Gentile Christians. And they're saying, you have to keep the Mosaic laws in order to maintain your identity as a Christian. And this wasn't right, and there was a lot of debates going on, and so they had to call this general conference session, you could say. These issues were distracting them from who Christ was and what he was doing for them in the heavenly sanctuary. And so what Paul does, as a pastor would do, is tactfully reorient them from what was in the past and shift their focus on the present. And so we start in Hebrews 1, reading in verse 1 and 2. It says, long ago and many times and in many ways, I'm reading from the ESV, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? By his son. I mean, the Jews back then highly revered these fathers and the prophets who had spoken to the fathers back in the day. So what he's doing is he's tactfully bringing them back to Christ. And uh, he doesn't want to give them the impression that the prophets or the fathers were not relevant because absolutely they were. They were the ones in whom received the covenant promises, the covenant promises of Israel. But he's saying that God in these last days, he. He's doing a bigger and better thing than he ever has, and he needs to convince them of it. And so he goes on from from verse 3 all the way to verse 4, and he, in this flowerly, flower, is that a word, flowerly? It is? Okay, flowerly language explains Christ's identity. 
And then he'll go on to explain Christ's work. And it's beautiful because what Paul does is he pulls out his theological ammunition. And he takes all of these texts that apply to the covenant promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. You can find that there. Most of these texts are coming from the kingship uh, Psalms. And you can find that in Psalms 89, uh, Psalms 110, and, and they're remarkable promises. What he's saying is they're fulfilled now. They're fulfilled. And he needs them to understand that Christ is better than the angels. Now, why, why is this significant? I was in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, and I was in a, a Goodwill store. I was looking at these shoes, and this girl was trying these shoes behind me. And she walked away, and there just so happened to be a board that was leaning up against the wall. And as soon as she stepped away to try on the shoes, the board fell down. And she was just startled. And she looked at the board, she looked at me, and she's like, oh, thank you, Michael Archangel. And I was like, whoa, I didn't expect someone to say that, you know, especially in San Francisco. And it just hit me that even though this, this woman may have been religious, but there's a good chance that she wasn't religious. Because a lot of times people love the idea of some angelic being directing their lives and protecting them every step of the way in their life. And to the Jews, you'll find this in the Jewish apocryphal literature in the first century, they highly revered the angels. They, they seen the angels as being a resemblance of God, and they were actually his messengers to communicate his word. And in chapter 2, he actually alludes to that. And so he's saying, this son who has fulfilled the covenant promises of David, he's way better than the angels. The, the angels are, are pretty much helping out those who he wants salvation for. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, after saying all of that, he sums it up. And he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So what does that mean? What does that mean if... We, if someone has to pay much more closer attention to something, is it new? They've, they've heard it before. This isn't new stuff. This isn't new stuff, brothers and sisters. This was actually the functioning worldview of the Christians back in that day, that a king would come and restore the kingdom of God according to the promise made by David. And, and everything that came with that, um, he's saying, look into this. Um, you might have had a teacher. Might have had a teacher in the classroom or maybe a boss at work um, tell you, hey, you're doing a good job with what you're doing because you're actually, you're actually studying or you're actually working. But you need to really focus in on this. I was a machinist probably uh, eight years ago up in Canada. Alberta, Canada. And uh, oftentimes my mind would be wandering off and I'd be daydreaming. I'd be doing what I needed to be doing. But I wasn't really focused and engaged. That job requires for you to basically cut metal so within a thousandth of an inch. 
That's, that's, as, that's as thin as a hair. And so I needed to pay much more closer attention to what I was doing because if I even went off a hair, I would eventually completely drift off and mess up what I was working on. And this, and this is what Paul is trying to, to bring to the attention to these Christians is that they're going to start slowly and gradually drifting away from the original gospel message. Kind of like a ship that's on course to his destination. Do you know if you turn the wheel slightly, a degree or so, that eventually it's going to veer off. And you may not even know that it's veering off. The same thing here. It says, therefore, we must pay much more closer attention to this gospel message, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. From verse 2 all the way to verse 4. Paul then reminds them that this gospel message was proclaimed with power. He tells them that the Holy Spirit was poured out, um, that God bore witness by signs and wonders, and this confirmed that what Jesus had done was legit that this was a legit thing. And so, pay attention. Now turn with me to verse 5. Hebrews 2, verse 5. And this is really where he tells them, or at least makes it clear what he's been talking about. For it was not to who? To angels that God subjected the world to come. Paul here is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He's saying that God didn't bring under control the inheritance of the new world to angels, but to Christ. Do you catch that? And so what he's saying is, yes, Christ has done this great great thing, but none of the angels had ever accomplished anything for you. And what I want to bring to your attention is this, that in the first century, these Jewish Christians were being distracted. And they weren't necessarily being distracted from things that were wrong. They were talking about things that were biblical. They were talking about the laws. They were talking about what it meant to, to be a Christian. Aren't those good things? Yeah, those are good things. But they were making the doctrines and the debate the object of their faith rather than Christ himself. And we see this often. Uh, Paul addresses these issues in the New Testament. As you can see on the screen, it's in Galatia. Paul warns not to give into knockoff gospels. He says, even if the gospel is twisted just a little bit, it'll, it'll completely send you off course. And to the church in Philippi, he warns them not to give into peer pressure uh, from the circumcision, which were the Jewish Christians that were saying, hey, you need to be circumcised in order for you to be a part of the church of God. And actually, even more interesting, to the, to the church in Colossae, they were being exposed to offshoot beliefs about ascetic practices and misleading visions and the worship of angels. So it wasn't just things, 
It just wasn't the law. These, these are people who are trying to reapply the prophecies to bring it to our day, to reapply the prophecies, for example. Um, I'm pretty sure many of you have met people in the church who kind of have their hobby horse. You know what I'm saying? They have their hobby horse. There are certain theological things that they're always talking about, and that's not necessarily bad, but what can happen is these people can make that the object of their faith. And so they're talking about the Bible, but they're focusing on the doctrine and not what the doctrine is supposed to be leading you to. That's exactly what was happening in this day. You could probably recall in your mind some of the offshoots that are in our denomination. And I want to suggest one thing, that the reason why these people go off on offshoot, go into these offshoots and different sects, is because they're discontent with Christ. They're discontent with Christ in the original gospel message that they had once heard. They didn't mature into that gospel message. They didn't make it personal. And as a result of that, they're always grabbing and looking for something to feel like they, they had some type of religious accomplishment. And that's what the Jews were doing. And Paul here is saying, guys, go back. Remember what the Son of God has done for you and what he has fulfilled. And so Paul here starts talking about a creation song. And here only a part of the psalm is quoted, but I would like for us to read Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 to 8. It says, when I look, sorry, typo, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man, that you would care for him. Here, the, here King David, you can imagine, is outside and he's peering into the sky when there was no light pollution at that time. And he could see the stars very clearly. And he's saying, wow, why would you even consider us when you are so powerful and you could create the stars that I'm looking at right now. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. Why is Paul... Now, bringing this into his discussion. Well, he's trying to bring their minds back to the original creation covenant that God had made with man from the beginning. And he's saying that he didn't bring everything under control to the angels, but he brought it under control by Christ. In other words, Christ is the second Adam. And he is restoring back the original kingdom of Eden for you. This is powerful stuff. We read in Patriots and Prophets, and she's, she's explaining the original creation inheritance when she says, while they remain true to God 
Adam and his companion Eve were to bear rule over the earth. Unlimited control was given to them over every living thing. So long as they remain loyal to the divine law, their capacity to know, to enjoy, and to love would continually increase. You can, you can just imagine this. This is what Christ has done for us. This is what he has, he has redeemed us from sin, and he's restoring us back to. She continues, they would be constantly gaining new treasures of knowledge, discovering fresh springs of happiness, and obtaining clear and yet clear conceptions of the immeasurable, unfailing love of God. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that right from the, the very in, inception of, of mankind, that he had made them sovereign over the earth? And not only that, but he gave them life blessings. He gave them the fruit of the tree to eat. He gave them work so they can find satisfaction. He made marriage. Amen. Praise the Lord. Companionship. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply. Increase in all of these things, all of these life blessings. Paul wants to bring their minds back to these very things and say that Christ has, is restoring the kingdom of God. He's bringing you back to this. But this is not the main point. This is the main point here. And we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, it says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He's finishing the psalm. Now, in putting everything in subjection or under control to him, that is Christ, he left nothing outside of his control. This is Hebrews 2.8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see Jesus. You see that? He's saying these things are all great and all. You need to pay attention to them, what Jesus has accomplished for you. But you need to consider how he's accomplished it for you. So it's not, so he's saying we can't see everything that was given to us, but we can see Jesus who is given for us. And he's saying you can be content with Christ. You can be content with Christ. I don't know where you are this morning, but perhaps... You're being distracted in some way or other. You may even be uh, considered someone who is a, a strong Bible student, has strong devotions, someone who's active in ministry. But you find yourself getting distracted, and oftentimes you're not contemplating what Christ has accomplished for you and who he is and what he had to do in order to, in order to accomplish it. If that's you this morning, you, you can be reassured by the message here in Hebrews that you can be content with Christ. And, and you may not even be in that area. Maybe, maybe you're someone who is just trying to find contentment in the world. Um, maybe it's sports. And maybe it's fill in the blank. But you know in your heart of hearts that you're not content with Christ. You can be content with Christ. And so he continues on and he says in verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I just, I just find this remarkable because he's, he's saying, you know, hopefully, basically this is the idea. Hopefully by the grace of God, he was thinking, hopefully by the grace of God, I could die for everyone. Do you, do you wake up in the morning and think about that? That's what Jesus has done for us. The, the creator had, had become the creation. The life giver died himself. When you look up into the stars that were ordained by God, the creator, and you contemplate that and that he's actually condescended to come to this filthy, dirty world, what does that do to your heart? What does that do to your mind? And hopefully you're content with that. Hopefully you're settling into that. And on a daily basis, a weekly basis, in your Christian walk, you're getting clear conceptions of what that means to you personally. It's easy to say, oh, Christ died for my sin, or he died for the sins of the world. But what does that mean for me? What does that mean for the church? What does that mean for the world? Paul talks about this all in his letters, and I would encourage you that if you, you find yourself discontent with your knowledge about what Christ has done for you and who he is, to go back and revisit the letters of Paul. Read through a whole letter, just sweep through it, and try to catch the main message that he's trying to communicate about the Messiah, about your Lord, and about your Savior. We can't see everything that was given to us, but we can see Jesus who is given for us. We can be content with Christ. You know, there was also someone who was discontent in his connection with God. His name was King Solomon. I know all of you are very uh, acquainted with King Solomon. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes. If you would, Ecclesiastes. We're looking at chapter 1. You probably beat me to it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verse 8 and 9. If you read in 1 Kings 4, 20 and 21, you'll see that Solomon had inherited the covenant blessings. I'm having a hard time finding it here. You see, King Solomon, son of David, he was the inheritor of these blessings, and he had everything that anyone could ever want. And it explains that in 1 Kings 4, 20 and 21. The promises made to David to extend his borders and to prosper Israel were being fulfilled. You can read it, and you can see that the very promises that were made to Abraham are actually being fulfilled during his reign. And the author brings it out, and he's actually using the exact same language, um, the covenant language that he had spoken to Abraham, and it's amazing. Because it said, from the river of Egypt to the river of Euphrates, his borders extended, and all of Israel was rejoicing. And it was because of one thing, because the king, the wise king, was mediating the law to the people. He was administering justice 
and he was teaching them righteousness. And as a result, they were just, it was the best time in the history of Israel. You can't find a better time than that actually in the Old Testament. So you can just imagine King Solomon had everything he could ever want, anything that he could ever need. But there's something that went wrong. And we read it in verse 8, what was the issue? Ecclesiastes 1a. All things are full of weariness, he says. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What type of issue do you think Solomon has here? What, what has been, in verse 9, is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing, what does it say? New under the sun. Do you ever wonder why Solomon said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, so often in the book of Ecclesiastes? I mean, what, what was vain about his life? What was vain about God's promises being fulfilled in his life? There was nothing vain about it. The issue is that he was always looking for something new. He was discontent with where God had brought him. And the powerful thing is that within, within the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to a conclusion. We read this in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. He comes to a conclusion. See, he had once experienced contentment in all that God had done for him in Israel, but he began to lose sight in the simple life that God had blessed him with, enjoying God's blessings and doing God's will and keeping his commandments. And then in verse 2, I just find this remarkable. Verse 24, it says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink. Really? and find enjoyment in all of his toil. This also I saw is from what? The hand of God. This is my own little spin or take on this, but I think he's actually thinking about creation in some way. That God had ordained these different modes of life, the food and the marriage and all these various things, and he says there's nothing better than just to enjoy these things but with God. And, and, and they cannot be enjoyed without him. And so apart from God, we'll find discontentment even in seemingly good things in our Christian walk. About six or seven years ago, I had just come into the Adventist faith. I was raised in Adventist, but I didn't really know what the message was. Actually, very similar to um, Michael Tuazon. And I'd learned that Christ was my high priest in heaven. That was remarkable to me. I, I didn't know that. I thought Jesus was just hanging out until we got our act together and then he was going to come back. And actually, he kind of is doing that. But, but, you know, I just didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know he was working on my behalf. And when I had studied the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8.14, it completely changed my life. And I was on fire because I had purpose in my life. I've seen that there's, there was this big movement of God. And I've always looked into the world when I was in the world and said, man, this is vanity. This is all vanity. This is vexation. I was so discontent and dissatisfied with what I had. And then I started to get deeper into the scripture. I started doing Bible working. I went to AFCO. 
And uh, there was something wrong. Even though I was in ministry, I was active, you know, there was something wrong. Um, I was gaining insights from God's word. I had a devotional life. But what had happened was I was getting caught up in trying to find some cool symbol or parallel in the scripture. I was getting caught up in trying to be the next Stephen, Stephen Bohr, you know. And I was also getting caught up in different debates. I had, I had um, friends that were from the Pentecostal church. I had friends that were from the Jehovah's Witnesses and the LDS. And these were beautiful people, but I was, I was battling with them. I was defending the faith, you know. Um, I was telling them they need to keep the law. If they, don't need to keep, if they don't keep the law, then they're finished. And in a sense, that's true, but I needed to show them Christ. And my direction was slowly shifting from what, what Christ had accomplished and what he had done for me. I started getting caught up in this theological rigor. And I was getting distracted, becoming discontent. I would open up my Bible, even, even while I was at Weimar um, in my freshman year at college, and I was just so discontent with my devotional life. It was because I felt like I needed some type of ecstatic experience right there and right then in order to be content that God was with me. I was becoming discontent with Christ. This is what happened with Solomon in a sense, and perhaps you're experiencing this in your life in some degree. Go back to the scripture. Revisit the original gospel message. Look at it in its Old Testament context. Allow God to reveal to you fresh insights about his word. That doesn't mean where we shouldn't get into the prophecy whatsoever. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't get into doctrinal arguments at times, healthy arguments, you know, and work things out. But keep the focus on Christ and Christ alone. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, thank you that we can be content with Christ. Lord, we recognize uh, the beauty of what you have inherited for us, the new heavens and the new earth and all the blessings that come with it. But even knowing that is useless apart from the knowledge that you love for us, you died for us, and you gave yourself for us. And so, Lord, we want to be content with you. And this morning you have heard the heart's cry of that individual in the, in the congregation this morning. They're, content, they're discontent, not because they don't know the Bible, not because they're not active in ministry, but because they have lost focus on you, they're being distracted. Perhaps, Lord, it's doctrines or debates, or it's things of this world. I pray, Lord, that you would help them make the decision they need to make. And that you, you show them where to, to begin in the scriptures so that they can see you in a clear light. 
Father, we need your spirit to see these things. It says in your scriptures, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. But he has revealed it to us by his spirit, by your spirit. And so grant them a measure of your spirit, Lord, so that they can see the eyes of faith to Jesus once again. And help us all to continue in this conflict over your identity and your work. And we ask all these in the, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.